For most of us, rinsing out our plastics and dropping those single-use containers into our curbside recycling seems like a worthy, if unremarkable, pursuit. But a new study suggests even recycling plastic may be doing more harm than we realise. From increasing its toxicity to releasing billions of microplastic particles in every cubic metre of wastewater, recycling may not be the silver bullet we once hoped. So how else can we prevent our plastic consumption from wreaking havoc on the environment and taking its toll on our health? Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Serena Sandu, and this week I'm joined by our science and environment correspondent, Tom Borden, and our environment correspondent, Dan Capuro, to look at how exactly we can kick our plastic habit and clean up our recycling act. Tom, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. So Dan, let's start with you. Most of us think we're doing a good thing when we sort our waste into different materials and pop the plastics into the recycling. What is supposed to happen next? Well, it depends where you live. And depending how transparent your local council is, you should be able to go online and find out exactly where it's meant to go. But the best case scenario, so we'll take Westminster where I live. I don't need to sort my recycling, but I, I put it all in one bag. It gets collected a few times a week. It then gets separated at a specialist centre nearby. I think for Westminster, it's in East London. And then different bits go to different places. So the glass goes up to Merseyside and is turned into insulation. The plastic is recycled at a specialist plastic recycling centre. The cardboard again goes to a specialist cardboard recycler. And then anything that it turns out they can't recycle will go with the general waste and go in an incinerator. So in theory, it contributes to the circular economy. These things get reused. We don't have to get new resources. And, you know, in the case of glass, it's going to something that also helps reduce our our energy use and our carbon emissions in that way too. But there is an issue with the way that we're recycling plastic and the idea of people wish cycling, which means households contaminating the system by recycling the wrong items, albeit with good intentions. And the government wants to intervene here and force manufacturers to change. Yeah, so there's a few things going on. With the wish cycling, the issue you have is that if you want people to recycle, you have to make it as simple as possible. That's why in in Westminster and lots of other local authorities, they don't require you to separate. Some listeners might remember, you know, not that long ago, having lots of different bins and having to sort recycling into different categories. I certainly had that growing up, you know, three or four different bins. And and I think there was a, a story a few weeks ago that the government was considering going up as high as, you know, sort of seven bins. The problem with that is that it makes it difficult for people to recycle because we're creatures of habit. People don't want to spend hours going through their various bits of recycling. And also the knowledge isn't always there. You know, you see that with the wish cycling, because as as well as people not necessarily putting the right things in the right place, you also have them putting things that can't be recycled. So the classic example given of wish cycling is pizza boxes. So they are covered in grease. That can't be recycled. That cardboard is now contaminated. It's damp and greasy and it won't work. Uh, It's why you might find if you go to one or two fancy high street fast food chains that they put a little bit of grease paper inside the cardboard box so that you'll find that the cardboard is recyclable. But of course, yes, once you put it in there, it's contaminated and it can then rub off on other 
things that you've put in your recycling, which then means that those can't be recycled. And of course, it adds an extra layer of difficulty for the uh, recycler themselves because they have to, a lot of the time, has to go through and be manually picked out. And then you have other examples like black plastic, which the current technology is not designed to pick out. But the other problem, of course, you have is that while you're trying to simplify it and make it as easy as possible for people to recycle and get themselves into the habit, the reality is that there has to be demand for the stuff that comes out the other end. Someone has to want to buy the recycled plastic, the recycled glass, whatever it is that you're, you're putting in there. And for some things like metal, that's really easy because mining metals is energy intensive, it's a pain, it's expensive, and metals have very high prices. And so the worst thing you can do is put a, an empty can of Coke in, in the recycling because that really will be recycled again and again and again and again. But with many things like plastics, you see that there just isn't the demand. It's so much cheaper in a lot of cases to just use virgin plastic because we have it's a byproduct of oil, right? And we're pumping and refining oil on an incredible scale all over the planet. There will always be cheap virgin plastic available and finding ways in which recycled plastic, which has this extra cost involved, can be price competitive is very difficult. And for a long time, we used to export to the developing world, places like Malaysia, China, places where you would see quite often blamed for the huge amounts of microplastics in the ocean, which is not totally incorrect. And that yes, that's where the plastic was entering the ocean. But of course, it was plastic that was meant to be recycled that we'd exported from the West because we couldn't do it at a cheap enough competitive price. Lots of those countries, including China, have now banned the import of plastic for recycling. So we're now stuck where we have to make it work here. It's interesting what you say, because I think I and I imagine some listeners are very guilty of a bit of wish cycling. You know, it's rubbish. You just want to kind of deal with it as quick as possible. So you put in something that maybe is not completely washed properly or that you think, oh, that little part of the packaging can't actually be recycled, but it'll be okay. You know, someone else can sort it out. So <laughs> that's definitely given me some food for thought. So Tom, Dan, are you guilty of ever wish cycling or having wish cycled in the past? Do you know, probably, although I'm going to plead ignorance on that one, <laughs> what I have done is probably an, an equally bad sin is, you know, occasionally when you've got something that's just it's too grim inside. You don't want to open it up in case you've bred a new pandemic inside. So you just put the whole thing in the bin instead of recycling it. <laughs> oh, I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Tom? <laughs> I'm definitely a wish cycler. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, what's your worst wish cycling? I don't know if this counts as wish cycling or not, but I was under the impression that leaving the soup and bits of food in packaging was absolutely fine and that it was washed out as part of the recycling process. And and then last week, something I read suggested that actually you have to scrub them scrupulously clean. So I think that's that thing again of like, it depends where you live. Because I, I, there was BBC one, I was at a recycling centre, and they said, no, no, we double spray. Mm. We double spray everything. So, you know, double rinse to get it clean. Because it's all done. It's not sophisticated. It's all done by people. So, Tom, moving on to you, is there something about plastics in particular that makes them difficult to recycle? Yeah, I mean, they're incredibly strong, which is why they're so durable. They're made up of incredibly long chains of molecules. Most of them are carbon, but it also includes hydrogen and various other elements. And and the bonds are, are really so tight that they can only be broken using huge amounts of energy, which is obviously an expensive business. But the fundamental issue is that because they're synthetic, Nature hasn't really evolved to break them down. So as where other natural materials can be broken down over time quite quickly, really, by bacteria and fungi, plastic can stay there for absolutely ages. I mean, plastic bottles don't really start 
decomposing until sort of five to seven hundred years. And plastic bags take even longer. They they take about a thousand years before they start breaking down. That's quite horrifying, I've got to say. So Dan, there's also this new review by Greenpeace USA, which found that recycling plastics can increase toxicity. Could you explain how that's possible? Yeah, of course. So as Tom was saying, these sort of incredibly durable items that survive for a long time, you see them in any number of products. And of course, one of the things that plastic bottles are used for and plastic boxes and things is to store fairly nasty things, you know, chemicals, bleaches, acids, drain unblocker, all this kind of stuff. And bits of those chemicals will become embedded in the plastic over time. And it's a bit like if you think about how people are worried about mercury in fish, you know, going up the food chain, ending up in tuna, it's a bit like that, where the more you recycle plastic and keep using it again and again, the very small concentrations of chemicals that might have been okay at a certain level build and build and build so that in theory, some recycled plastic might have unsafe levels of various nasties. And Tom, the study also showed even one of the better managed recycling facilities was releasing up to 13% of the plastic it recycles as microplastics. Why should we be worried about microplastics? The first thing to say is that they are kind of everywhere. You know, they're at all stages of, of the food chain. You know, they're in algae, they're in insects, they're in all kinds of plants, they're in fish, you know, they're in whales, they're in birds, they're in everything. And they're also all over people, you know, they're, they're in the bloodstream, they've been found in placentas, they're getting passed on to fetuses, which is particularly horrifying, I think, you know, being found in the lungs and all this kind of thing. We don't actually know exactly what the health effects are, but obviously it can't be great. They absorb chemicals and they, they contain chemicals which can be leached out into, you know, whatever wildlife or humans that they're in inside. So, I mean, at the very least, they're leaching out small amounts of chemicals which could potentially accumulate over time. Don't really know with humans how much they actually kind of pass through the system, if you like, or whether, you know, they, to what extent they migrate into other organs and, and kind of stay there, which would be much more concerning. So, obviously, it, it, it's a major cause for concern, but just how much of a cause for concern, we're not sure. I mean, it's not just microplastics I might add as well. You know, bigger pieces of plastic, which they become microplastics over time, but on the way to that point, they're, they're bigger pieces. And there's, there's plenty of stories of cases of birds choking or their stomachs are full with bits of plastic that they eat because they, th they think they're food and that kind of thing. And, and that, you know, definitely kills and in, in some cases at least. So Tom, tell us a bit more about the damage that microplastics could be having on humans and what research is already out there. So it's been found that microplastics have made their way into human placentas, which raises the obvious concern that they're going to get passed on to offspring, which is particularly alarming. And there's also been studies in rats, which have shown that they are actually being passed on to babies. And so given that they're quite similar in many ways to humans, it wouldn't be at all surprising if the same was true for humans as well. Although, as always with these things, it's important to, ha, despite what I've just said, to um, try and keep these things in perspective and not perhaps to get too alarmed. I mean, you certainly need to keep a very close eye on these things and an awful lot more research needs to be done. But at the same time, you know, we don't actually just don't really know how how much of a health issue these things are for humans anyway. 
reporting on space missions searching for life on Jupiter to delving deep underground into a super sewer, Tom and Dan's reporting really knows no bounds. To support this important work and keep up with all the latest news and features, consider a subscription. Go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get more than 30% off a digital subscription to i. i. For open minds, subscribe today. So a question for both of you, really. Is plastic pollution getting worse? Yes. I mean, there's two stories, really. Globally, it's getting much worse and it's going up very rapidly. And I think there's predictions that by 2050, it's plastic use is going to triple to 1.1 billion tonnes a year, which is quite extraordinary, really, when you consider how much plastic is already around. In the UK, it's, it's a different story because plastic use is coming down because there's an awful, been an awful lot of awareness about it. For example, there was the introduction of the charge on carrier bags, so six or seven billion or something like that, less carrier bags used every year. And there's less plastic being used in packaging and there's various bands on microbeads, tiny little beads that they put in toothpaste and body scrubs and things which give the friction when you scrub away. Plastic straws and stirrers are are being banned and that kind of thing. So there's a big focus on it and a big reduction on it in the UK, but obviously a lot of other parts of the world where the economies are growing fast and, you know, more people are getting more money and they want more consumer products and so on, then use is increasing. So Dan, we recently ran an opinion piece by James Dyke and in that he talked about trying to go plastic free for a week and the very many challenges he faced in the supermarket. Plastic is ingrained in our daily lives, for better or worse. Can we actually ever really reduce our need for it? Yeah, it was a really interesting piece by James. I think while reading it, the thing that struck me though is that, you know, he talked about how you know, we only really got plastic in the 50s and 60s and we coped fine without it beforehand. So surely we can go back to that. I think what's sometimes missed in the plastic debate is that we've identified this one terrible thing that clearly is an enormous problem, but swapping it out for other things doesn't necessarily mean that the overall net result is good. The classic example that supermarkets use is the cucumbers. You know, it's wrapped in an individual sleeve of plastic and people think this is a disgrace. Why is the, is the cucumber not loose? But that can add several days onto the shelf life of a cucumber. And so the alternatives are either that you have a lot more food waste because cucumbers end up going in the bin or they become much more expensive and and people are less likely to buy them. So we are always going to need either plastics or something similar. Now, of course, there is a big question of what happens when oil hopefully is finally phased out of the global economy because then plastics stop being just a byproduct. They have to be made in their own right. So there are lots of questions about what comes next. And, you know, I've got a piece that listeners should be able to see online about seaweed and all the many uses of seaweed and one of which is in replacement products. But, you know, plastic has revolutionized our lives, made it a lot easier in a lot of ways, made it more efficient and to an extent greener. You know, for example, it's just so much lighter to ship around plastic than it is to ship around heavy glass bottles. You know, that's one example. So we'll have to think really hard about when we do replace plastic and when we keep it, but think really, really hard about 
how we recycle it, how we reuse it, which is always better than recycling, and when and where we should and shouldn't use it. And you mentioned they're using seaweed as a possible alternative. Tom, are there any other kind of alternatives that could be a viable solution to plastics? And do you have any other ideas about how we can reduce our need for them? There are alternative plastics made out of vegetables, mainly potato and cornstarch, which seem to have sort of mixed reports. I I think they do biodegrade better than plastic and, and sometimes much better, but they do often need the right conditions for, you know, they need to be, in some cases, at least they need to be put in compost and even home composts aren't necessarily hot enough sometimes. Other times they get thrown into the general recycling, but they don't break down properly there and they can contaminate the whole batch. Yeah, so there is progress being made in that direction and and it's definitely helping the situation, but it's definitely not going to be the case, or at least not for the foreseeable future, where we just switch from oil-based plastic to potato and, and cornstarch-based product. So yeah, in the meantime, it's better to try and reuse the same bag, either plastic or preferably you know, a cloth one, and you know get coffee cups and water bottles and, and take those around with you. There seems to be a lot of talk about that a few years ago, not so much these days. I'm, I'm sure it's still happening, but it seems like perhaps the focus has gone off those a bit. Keeping things for longer and, and buying secondhand products and, and that kind of thing is going to make a big difference. I think, and yeah, just to come in on what Tom was saying as well is is that in a lot of ways we're really obsessed with keeping the convenience of what we have today. And you know, convenience is great and it is important, but you know, it comes at a cost. And do we always need it as much as we think we do? Because you know, you might swap a plastic shopping bag for a paper one, but you know, just because it's come from trees doesn't mean that it's without cost. You know, not only is there a lot of energy that goes into making paper and turning it into bags, but there's lots of chemicals that go into it, things like bleach. And of course, a big chunk of land has to be given over to commercial forestry. You know, if you go up to the Highlands of Scotland, there's huge non-native conifer plantations, which go into timber, which go into paper and things like this. And so, you know, you pick up glass, that glass will have come from sand, which has probably been mined from the seabed and then lots and lots of heat applied to it to turn it into glass. And so rather than sort of thinking, well, how can I just swap my plastic for something else that's equally as convenient and equally as throwaway? What you really need to think about is how you can just buy the one thing that hopefully lasts you years and years and years. I've got to say, I think, well, my downfall certainly is just like lack of time and doing things quickly and forgetting stuff and then having to buy things on the go. But I think if we prepared a bit more, we'd all be a bit better, but I guess that's easier said than done. So at a policy level, we reported that the government is set to launch a campaign against this wish cycling. Dan, how would that work? And is that enough? Because it seems almost counterintuitive to recycle less and that be better. Yeah, so we don't have all the details yet, obviously, still sort of consultations ongoing. But it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that if you want people to do things, you need to make it as hassle-free as possible, as easy as possible. You know, remove all the hurdles. But if you do that too much, people don't pay attention to the rules. It's strange, but sometimes you'll see that recycling bins have smaller openings at the top than general waste bins. And it's because it's much more of a problem if someone sticks something that shouldn't be in the recycling than it is if someone who sticks something recyclable in the general waste. And so they'd rather you take the time to think before you shove something in there. Obviously, 
the result of that is that you'll walk past a, a normal bin and you'll see cans in it, which is a shame, but it's better that than the whole recycling thing being got rid of. About mixed items, sometimes you'll get something that's got a bit of plastic in it, a bit of paper in it. You're, you're there at, at one of those bins with all the openings being like, right now, this goes there, this goes there. And I can see that people are just like, oh, just shove it in the general waste yes. one. Well, this is one of the big criticisms, I think. And you will certainly hear more of this when the government's policy comes out, because, you know, they're talking about making it easier so that people don't do things like put a greasy pizza box in. But you see this problem all the time with environmental policy is that responsibility for the problems is lumped on the consumer. You see it with the idea of the carbon footprint. You see it with James trying to go around and buy things without plastic. If there isn't choice, what can you do as a consumer? You know, 20 years ago, you couldn't choose not to get your electricity from coal because that's what 50% of the electricity system was. And you see this with recycling, where a lot of the emphasis is on consumers to make the right decisions, consumers to buy the right things, when really the people that should be getting this right, the people who should be bearing the responsibility are the polluters, which is the companies, the ones who make money from it. And so you see some policies where there's a different approach. So listeners may have seen the kind of the big row going on at the moment, which is being framed as a devolution row over the deposit return scheme, which Scotland is pioneering, but there should eventually be one within a few years across the UK, which is where basically you go and buy a can, a bottle, either glass or plastic of something. There's a deposit on it, something like 20p per bottle. You know, these already exist in, in Germany and Austrian places. So if you're buying a six pack of beer, you know, it's, it's more than a pound the deposit and then you go to a vending machine that will be at the supermarket or wherever it is you buy this stuff there's a barcode on the bottle you put it in and that goes to the recycling center and then the customer is refunded the deposit now the important thing about that is the emphasis on making it work on making the vending machines on making sure the products are recyclable is all on the manufacturers on the brewers on the fizzy drink makers on the bottled water companies and i think generally sort of the expert consensus is that that is a much more effective way of getting recycling to happen because if you're just relying on consumers to do the right thing to take the time to sit there i mean you know you've got a packet that's had raw chicken in it do you really want to sit there and peel off the top layer of plastic that's not recyclable every last bit of it before you then rinse the smelly chicken juice off the bit of plastic that is recyclable and fish out that gross absorbing patch and put that in the bin and then you know this whole process it puts all the emphasis on the consumer who, with the best wishes in the world, probably doesn't have the time and the inclination to do it. And so it does generally make more sense to force businesses to do better, basically. One thing I find really hard when I'm trying to recycle is deciphering their different messages on packaging. So sometimes it's really easy and you know, yeah, this can be recycled. Sometimes there are little symbols with numbers attached. Sometimes there's little notes saying this can be recycled, but only if you take it to your local recycling plant. Dan, can you demystify this signage for us? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a bit complicated and it's not like the UK safety stamp or what used to be when we were in the European Union, the, the CE mark, which, you know, goes on the bottom of things and you know that it's been tested and it's safe and it's not going to, you know, if it's a glass, it's not going to explode or, you know, whatever it might be. With the recycling, there's not an official government body that does it. It's a charity that works with industry and with the government. We've just been scrolling through them this afternoon and, you know, there's the straightforward clean green one, you know, which probably goes on cardboard and things. Yeah, put that straight in the recycling. But then it starts to get, you know, added layers of complexity, ones that say rinse, ones that say take to your local recycling centre. And of course, the one that you really see all the time is please check with your local authority mm. whether this can be recycled. Because there's one or two things that can be recycled absolutely everywhere. You know, saying before, you just won't find a local authority. At least I don't think you'll find a local authority that, that wouldn't let you recycle metal because it's just so easy and, and valuable to do it. 
but it then gets more and more complicated. And one of the ones that people may have heard of a lot is uh, sort of Tetra Packs, which is a similar problem to reusable coffee cups because they have lots of layers in them. So on the outside, it looks like cardboard. But then what you'll have is multiple layers of cardboard, probably with glue in between. And then the inner layer, obviously, to make it waterproof, there'll be maybe a very, very thin layer of metal or some kind of sort of tinfoil type thing, and then a layer of plastic. And so to recycle that needs specialist facilities. It's quite expensive to be able to strip the various layers, break it up all into the right parts. And some local authorities will do that, some won't. And at the moment, the onus is on you as an individual, as a consumer, to go on your local council website and find out, which again is you know, saying that the best regulations are the ones that force the manufacturers mm. to make their products recyclable. Why is there a discrepancy in what different councils offer in regards to recycling? Is it funding? Yes and no. I mean, there's a bit of everything. I mean, as you'll see around local elections, bin collection is, is one of the most controversial things. And so local councils make sure that bins work because they don't they don't want to lose the next election. And there are sort of fairly stringent mandates, you know, as we're seeing with these government consultations, you know, the government can and does say councils must meet these service levels. But councils will only do it if they can do it within their budgets. And if it makes economic sense, you know, again, where I live, Westminster, they only just started taking food waste about a year ago. And, you know, I remember getting my first food waste bin in in rural Northamptonshire 15 years ago, you know, so it does depend on what the councils think they can do. And again, this comes back to, you know, other local facilities. So for example, with food waste, you need to have a sort of bioreactor nearby, probably that's usually where it ends up, where it gets sort of turned into gas and heat and electricity. There has to be one of those there that has to have capacity. It has to, the price has to make sense. And you'll see that with the plastic recycling and things like that. And again, this is the difference between councils that require you to separate councils that don't, is that the council needs to be able to find a facility that will sort it at a decent price. And that'll be why in some areas you do have to sort your own recycling and in other areas you don't. I guess what I'm wondering is what are the easiest ways that I can get rid of plastic in terms of recycling it without causing more problems than I should be. Tom, do you have any ideas or recommendations for people? Yeah, I mean, it is for me, it's quite straightforward. And I suggested it earlier, but just getting a coffee cup, a, a reusable coffee cup, using the same shopping bags and using the same water bottles are all good things to do. And, and on top of that, if you go out for a picnic, perhaps now that the weather's getting nicer, you could use real cutlery and real plates rather than plastic cutlery and plastic plates. Hopefully there's not too many of you, otherwise the bag might be a bit heavy, but it would be a good way to save plastic waste. Yeah, I suppose a couple. I mean, one, as I was saying earlier, never, ever, 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 ever put metal in the general bin because it really, whatever your doubts about the system are, metal will be recycled. So don't put it in the bin. And the flip side of that, you know, if in doubt, don't put it in the recycling because it'll probably mess it up. We do have a fairly decent general waste system in this country. It'll either be incinerated or put in landfill. So, you know, do make the effort if you can. But yeah, don't put metal in the bin. And as Tom said, try and reuse things. And don't don't rush out after listening to this podcast and go and buy a brand new metal water bottle that's got a ton of embedded carbon. You probably have something lying around in your house that's all dusty. Give it a rinse. Use that to get your water in the office tomorrow. That's all for this week. You can follow Tom and Dan's reporting, as well as breaking news, in-depth features and insightful political analysis at inews.co.uk. As ever, we'd love to hear your feedback, so drop us a line at podcasts at inews.co.uk. I'm Serene Sandu and you can find me on Twitter 
at serenasandhu1. This week's episode was written and produced by Phoebe Fleming, edited by Julia Webster, and executive produced by Albert Evans. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.